When I lived and worked in Washington, a friend of mine used to playfully mock my appeals for understanding between partisans with a well-timed, can't we all just get along? Today's guest has dedicated her life's work to understanding the dynamics of intergroup conflict and how to get groups talking to one another. She's Linda Tropp, this week on Story in the Public Square. And welcome to Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. I'm Jim Lutis from the Pell Center at Salve Regina University. Alongside me is my friend and co-host, G. Wayne Miller of the Providence Journal. Each week, we talk about big issues with great guests, authors, scholars, artists, and more to make sense of the stories that shape public life in the United States today. To help us this week, we're joined by Dr. Linda Tropp, Professor of Social Psychology at the University of Massachusetts. Linda, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. So, you know, we want to talk to you about your work, but I also want to talk to you a little bit about uh, how you got into this work, and in particular, your upbringing in Gary, Indiana. <laughs> and I will resist the temptation to burst into the song from, from <laughs> The Music Man, yeah. but, but talk to us about how that experience shaped your professional interests. Yeah, well, I, you know, <laughs> you've done your homework, um, and I would say, you know, uh, Gary, Indiana had a really strong formative influence for me because um, when I was growing up there, it was probably about 80 to 85 percent black. It was a very major site of black migration up north um, during the Great Migration uh, for a lot of work in the steel mills, and Gary was a big steel city. Uh, but one of the things that happened was that as black people moved in, as in so many places in our country, white people started moving out. And so not only did the population start declining, but it became uh, a large proportion black relative to um, what it had been before. And so by the time I grew up there, I was living as a white minority in a predominantly black city. And um, I just remember not only sometimes being perceived or treated differently because of my race, but also recognizing that there were some broader social issues at play, that you know, it might have been hard for me to be teased for being white, but at the same time, I could see the differences between, say, driving five or 10 minutes into one direction and seeing a lily white, you know, cornfields communities on the one hand, and then driving five or 10 minutes in the other direction of where I grew up and seeing, a lot of urban blight and, and a lot of people struggling uh, because there was no economic infrastructure left. What were some of those other social issues that you, that you, that you mentioned, though, that, that, that sort of you were aware of? Well, you know, so I was growing up in Gary in the 70s and 80s, right? And so if you think at a demographic level, you know, Gary, Indiana had the, uh, I believe, the highest murder and crime rates per capita of any city in the, in the continental U.S., probably Alaska and Hawaii as well. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you grow up in that type of environment and you're very, you're very aware of crime, you're very aware of safety issues, and you're very aware of, um, you know, people trying to, like, protect you <laughs> from, from those challenges outside of your home. Um, and so I felt like in some ways, you know, my life was a little bit restricted. You know, I remember only once in my childhood, my father raising his voice at me at all. And it was because I got home a little beyond what he considered sundown because <laughs> he was concerned for my safety. Um, and then I remember 
other experiences later in life that I think kind of grew out of those early experiences where um, I, I ended up uh, going to high school in Chicago. Um, and uh, I remember at one point taking the bus from the south side of Chicago up to downtown Chicago. And my, uh, my first thought, this was a couple of years after I'd been away at college, and my first thought was, wow, I'm the only white person on this bus. And what struck me right after that thought was, I've been on this bus 100 times before and I never had that thought. It was only after going away to a predominantly white college and then coming back did I feel you became aware of that, that difference yeah. in a different way? So, so I want to I want to just sort of draw the connection though for our audience. Mm. Explain what you do as a social psychologist sure. and how that experience growing up as a as a white person in a predominantly black community has informed that work. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, a lot of what my research pertains to is how group membership affects how we see and experience our relations with other people. Um, so we can think about that in terms of racial and ethnic relations, what role does group membership play in how we feel in relation to others, what we think in relation to others, whether members of different groups are likely to perceive or experience the same social context the same way or in different ways. Um, and one of the things that I think for me uh, that I've learned to think about as I teach and continue to do research in this area uh, is what I often share with my students, which is that um, our perceptions of the world are so much a function of our lived experience. And so if we're only accustomed to kind of one way of life, living in one community where we don't have the presence of other communities that might share different viewpoints or perspectives, then we might think that our way is the right way or the only way. Um, but I think I had some distinct experiences in my youth in being a minority in a, in a majority black context where I at least got some insights into the experiences of black Americans in this country that many white people may not have had. So much so that I remember, um, you know, when I later then went to college, uh, I, I guess I was homesick because I actively tried to befriend a number of uh, black women on my college campus. And uh, I only found out years later that the impact that had when I spoke with them like in our senior year, because there were also a lot of racial tensions on our campus. Mm. Interesting. So, yeah. so practically speaking, because mm -hmm. your work is research, but also it's very practical as well. How do you bridge those gaps in relationships between different groups? Yeah racial groups or ethnic groups. Yeah. And I realize it's a long answer here and, and take as long as you want. <laughs> okay. But it's fascinating and it's important work. So how do you bridge that gap? Yeah, so just to kind of frame this discussion, what I often try to do is think about where the breakdowns occur in communication or understanding between groups. And so if you think about the broader contact literature, the broader research literature on what happens when members of different groups interact with each other, there are kind of a couple of streams that we can think about on the one hand. Um, there's a very long-standing literature on what we can do to actively structure situations in ways that might pr promote positive outcomes of contact between groups. So these are often called optimal conditions for contact that have been around since Gordon Allport's writings about this in the 1950s in his classic book, The Nature of Prejudice. And when you say contact, what yeah. does that mean? Contact, so when I'm referring to contact, and thanks for asking because it's actually 
a bit contested mm -hmm. depending on discipline. So when I'm talking about contact from the psychologist's perspective, I'm talking about actual face-to-face -face interaction between okay. members of different groups. And sometimes, you know, in other disciplines, even in the social sciences, like political scientists or sociologists, they might use the term contact to refer to coexistence, mm -hmm. sharing space, being in the same environment, where you might study relations between groups in terms of their proportional representation, you know, in neighborhoods or in communities or in schools. Um, but in our case, we actually are talking about contact where people are actually engaging with each other to some degree. They're not simply coexisting in the same space. Mm -hmm. So that's the face to face that you're talking that's about. That's the face-to-face -face So are these sessions, are they classes? What do we call these? And how, bring us inside one of these. Yeah. It, how it works, what the ground rules are. Yeah. And how you get people who may have misunderstandings of the other group mm -hmm. to meet. Right. And resolve those differences. Oh, so or, resolving or those differences is a whole other, you know, <laughs> bottle of <laughs> <laughs> yeah, grant. So start with how you get a better understanding yeah. of a different group in these sessions. So, so one of the things, as social psychologists, you know, we often try to think about how can we structure social situations in ways that might facilitate the types of outcomes that we would ideally want, right? So using that approach, there's a, those optimal conditions that we might be able to kind of infuse in the contact situation in any circumstance, and I'll describe some examples in a moment, in any circumstance where members of different groups are interacting with each other. And these types of conditions involve things like um, establishing equal status between groups within the contact situation. So even if they are you know, of different statuses or have different power relations outside of the contact situation, that when they are brought together in the contact situation, they are treated and regarded as equals. Um, we can also think about another condition being institutional support that there are authorities, laws, norms, and customs of the institution for that context or that contact setting that is basically saying, yes, you should interact with each other and you should interact as equals, okay? So you can think about examples such as being in a classroom where uh, whether through numerical representation, that there's a critical mass of students from different backgrounds represented instead of one being alone or having token status in that context. You can think about institutional support being where, you know, the, the teachers and school staff and the administrators like highlight the value of lots of different groups through postering on the walls, represent different cultures, ethnicities, and racial backgrounds, either through examples in the curriculum, through the examples brought up in class discussions, that all those kids have equal opportunities to participate in class discussions, use the resources of the school, whether it's books or asking um, you know, for, for uh, support through counseling, whatever it happens to be, um, you know, computer and book access, all of those types of things. Um, and then there's two other types of conditions that we can kind of try to infuse in the contact situation, which include things called common goals, and cooperation, that members of those different groups try to work together cooperatively toward common goals. Um, and that's often referred to jointly as interdependence, whereby the members of those different groups really need to work together and rely on each other to achieve their shared goals. And, and that can work outside of the classroom. This doesn't Absolutely. have to be confined to education. No, no. So some common examples from education might be cooperative learning strategies, yeah. where kids break down into groups, learn pieces of the lesson, and then teach each other. That would be an interdependent type yeah, of teaching. Yeah, but what about outside of the classroom? Yeah, Give you can an example. think about um, kind of community programs where, you know, in even in a segregated 
metropolitan area where you can have people from different neighborhoods representing different ethnic, racial, religious backgrounds come together to decide on community art projects where they want to like have murals beautify the space that they all share, uh, like uh, pick up or clean up days in public parks. A, a clean up day, yeah. Yep, you can think about mural projects where like what types of art do we want to have, who do we want to have depicted, and then let's all work together to paint so, it. So a lot of that again is the face-to-face. -face. It's, it's face -to -face. Being, being with a member of that other group, mm -hmm. not... Yeah, and I think you can also say how, you know, you can envision how having those face-to-face -face experiences basically provide more inputs beyond just the stereotypic representations of groups that ex ex exist in the broader public sphere, right? Because if all we have are those broader ideas of what people are like, but no actual lived experience with them, we might be more likely to rely on those stereotypes when we think about members of other groups or perceive members of other groups, rather than being able to say, wait, I don't know if that stereotype's necessarily true because I have these other experiences to inform my views. We need to take a quick moment for station identification. This is Story in the Public Square, where storytelling meets public affairs. An audio version of this show can be heard four times every weekend on Sirius XM Satellite Radio's popular Politics of the United States. That's the POTUS channel, number 124. We produce Story in the Public Square with a great crew at Rhode Island PBS, and we're lucky to work with them. I'm Jim Lutis. On most days, you can find me running the Pell Center at Salve Regina University in beautiful Newport, Rhode Island. If you want to connect with me on Twitter, you can do so, at J.M. Lutus. Joining me as he does every week in the co-host chair is my friend G. Wayne Miller, who, who is an award-winning journalist with the Providence Journal and the author of 17 books, including the recently published Kid Number no. 1. You can find Wayne on Twitter, too, at G. Wayne Miller. And our guest this week is Dr. Linda Tropp, professor of social psychology at the University of Massachusetts. She's on Twitter, at Linda Tropp, T-R-O-P-P. Am I oversimplifying it to say that it's about balancing power relationships and actually getting to know other human beings as human beings? Um, I don't, well, <laughs> given that there are decades of research on it, I think some people would argue that that would be a little bit of an oversimplification, mm -hmm. but I think that's a useful way to simplify it for people to be able to envision why there are tensions between groups and how we can work to alleviate them. Um, because one of the other things that happens in intergroup conflicts or tensions between groups is that they often, members of those different groups often have different motivations and goals when they encounter each other, when they engage with each other face to face. So you can imagine, say, a dialogue program um, where you bring people from historically advantaged racial groups and historically disadvantaged racial groups together. Research would suggest that they have different motivational concerns and goals in that context, such that those in the more advantaged position basically want to know that they're still liked and accepted, that everything's okay, right? Um, some people would even go so far as to argue that they want to emerge with a feeling that their moral integrity is intact. I'm not racist, I'm not prejudiced, we're cool, we get along, everything's fine. Mm -hmm. um, but the motivational state for people in historically disadvantaged positions is oftentimes quite different. Um, on average, and across context, they tend to engage in those situations with a much greater motivation for having voice, agency, influence, decision-making. So, you know, th their thought processes might be, well, you know, it's not really a question for me whether I can get along with those folks or not. I want to talk about these structural inequalities that we're dealing with and what we can do about them. And you can imagine how for members of the advantaged community, that, 
that's kind of uncomfortable, it's, right? And it, fe and it, fe it feels menacing. <laughs> it feels menacing. It produces defensive responding mm -hmm. because it's, it seems to be, at first glance, in counter to their goals of being accepted and mm -hmm. liked and having moral integrity intact. And so really some of the work that we try to do is to think about how can we not see these as goals that are in opposition to each other? Why can't we think of ways to try to bring people in as allies where we can say, we can be self-reflective and honest enough to say, you know what, <laughs> as members of whatever advantage group we belong to, yeah, we have had some um, some privileges, <laughs> and that recognition of that might help to, you know, so help. In, in, mm -hmm. in this mm -hmm. process, two yeah. words recur in conversations we had yeah. in the green room before, and also in your work. Yeah. And one is empathy. Yep. And one is humanizing. Can you break those two down? These Absolutely. seem to be critical components of the process you're talking about. Yeah. So, you know, there's there's many different aspects to the. Um, academic concept of empathy. But at the, at the end of the day, what it basically boils down to from our perspective is to what extent do you actually care about the interests and the welfare of these other people, of members of this other group that you might not know as well as members of your own group. And so for me, part of the reason why I actually started studying contact <laughs> between groups as an, as an area of academic study was because I feel like through the process of having contact with other groups, we become psychologically invested in them and their experience and their perspectives. It's very hard to develop a friendship with someone in a member of another group and then not care about what happens to them, not care about what happens to their family or their community. It's kind of hard to, to turn off those switches once you've turned on. And that's that a very different experience, obviously, than, than interacting with a group online or through social media or mainstream media. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think there are also indirect. I mean, it's like us here talking. Yeah. Now, basically. Exactly. I care so much more about you, right? Than Knowing Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Now I'm going to that try to balance my content. <laughs> now you're going to have to go to work. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, I become more invested in your own story, in your own experience, in your, in your own perspectives on the world. And, you know, and I think, you know, this is something that I can easily envision uh, happening in, 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 so, so regularly in our society, where without spending more time to really process personalizing information about other people. We go through our days walking up and down sidewalks on busy city streets, mm. just seeing like a white male, a Latina female, whatever it happens to be, and not really processing more information about that person, right? So we're kind of conserving our cognitive energy, conserving our cognitive resources so that we can attend to other things like what we're going to have for dinner that day, um, you know, the other things on my to-do list that I want to get done before the end of the day. I think we also do similar things when it comes to our emotional resources, right? How many times have we looked through a newspaper and like selected certain articles to read and not others? Or someone shares a really challenging, upsetting piece of news with you and you're like, I can't hear that right now. It's just, it's too yeah. much, right? So when I think about empathy, to get back more directly to your question, I think about it in terms of empathic concern. To what extent are we willing to include those other groups within our circle of moral concern? Are, to what extent are we willing to see them as people who deserve to be cared about? And how can we broaden those circles, especially beyond our own Our conversation experience? thus far has sort of focused on, on, on race, yeah. right? There are other groups, though, other ways of Absolutely. dividing humanity. Yeah. Um, what are the ones that you've grappled with most that, that sort of beyond race that, that, that are a challenge? Yeah. So, 
Um, in my work, I do lean more on the, you know, racial, ethnic, ethno-political, ethno-religious, and, you know, citizenship, like mm -hmm. immigrant, U.S.-born uh, circles. Those tend to be the groups that I, I think about, perhaps because of my early life experiences mm -hmm. focused more on racial and ethnic differences. Um, and I think also because of my international travels and some of my work focuses on domestic racial and ethnic relations and some of my work focuses more on trying to build trust and prospects for reconciliation in divided societies in different parts of the world. Such as Rwanda. Such as Rwanda. So, so talk to us about your work there and mm -hmm. sort of you, you come away from that, you know, um, I think a little optimistic about I, f I would have People. to say optimistic about uh, human resilience. Um, I, so I, talk to us first. Tell us what, sure. you, what you did in Rwanda. Sure. Yeah. Um, so in Rwanda, I, I'm basically a consultant on a research project working with the Karuno Center for Peacebuilding uh, that also works with local partners in Rwanda that support dialogue programs between survivors of the 1994 genocide and non-survivors, people who played different roles in the genocide, such as perpetrators, bystanders. Um, and there are different types of programs that they and their partners have been hosting to try to bring people from these different role-based communities together, um, you know, now decades following the genocide, to work toward healing, to work toward promoting dialogue, to, to promote mutual understanding, not necessarily agreement, but at least an understanding of each other's perspectives. And so part of what I do is help them in evaluating their programs by using insights from the social science research that we do to figure out how can we assess change that people experience as they go through these types of dialogue programs. Change in terms of their acceptance of other? Their, mm -hmm. Acceptance is probably not the right word, but it's... It's a piece of it. Yeah. So their willingness to integrate and live in shared communities with the other, their beliefs that the other group is actually open to reconciliation, their feelings that members of the other community are actually willing to listen genuinely to their own lived experiences. And so you can think there's a lot of pieces related to empathy and humanizing of people who are different from oneself or who have different worldviews or experiences than oneself in this process. And I think par part of this is important because at the end of the day, I think we all want to feel heard. I mean, so much so much the, the theme of story that, that um, permeates your program, right? We, have, we all have stories and we want our stories to be heard. We want to feel that people are listening to our stories. And so to the extent that that happens, we might be in turn more willing to empathize, more willing to listen to other people's stories. Okay, so when when, when I got the notes from Wayne yeah. from his pre-interview with you, yeah. uh, I reading the material about Rwanda, yeah. and then the very next section is about how about domestic politics <laughs> And how you don't want to go there, and and it's a little gallows humor. But I'm thinking, okay, Rwanda genocide, we're good. Yeah. But domestic politics is not something that you're comfortable oh. because we, there are these incredible divisions yeah. and and group identities, bitter yeah. bitter political divisions. And, and, Absolutely. And I, I just want to sort of explore the contrast between <laughs> ethnic genocide yeah. and American domestic yeah. politics, and why that's so much harder for you at this yeah. point. Yeah. So, you know, I feel there's a part of me that feels like I should just hang my head in shame. <laughs> <laughs> but honestly, um, I think for me, part of the challenge is um, 
that so much of the, as I see it, you know, as a private citizen, not necessarily as, a, as an academic, mm -hmm. but as a private citizen, I think so much of the political rhetoric that pervades our public discourse today um, is focused on winning an argument, mm -hmm. is focused on having the soundbite that goes viral, is focused on the quip that puts down the other group in the most snarky and effective way possible. It's the zinger of a it's tweet. It's the zinger, yes, it's the zinger of the tweet. And I, um, I don't think that that is the, the most effective way to build empathy <laughs> and, right. and a sense of rehumanization yeah, no of the other, right? So now there are some very successful programs that have brought together groups um, like different political or ideological groups together for dialogues. Betterangels.org Better is, is one of those. Yes. I have not heard of them, but yep. maybe you can briefly describe what they do. Or um, so basically they take the same types of principles that, that we've been talking about around, you know, creating a context where there's equal status, you know, working toward mutual understanding, kind of that mm -hmm. common goals that's done, you know, through engagement with each other, um, kind of setting the stage to have spaces for those types of exchanges that are likely to promote more positive intergroup attitudes between or dispel left and right stereotypes. Or conservative exactly. And between or people from different ends right. of the political spectrum. Um, another example would be Hands Across the Hills, which is an initiative also in you know, related partnership to the Karuna Center with whom I work, where they've uh, brought together people from our generally uh, progressive liberal Western Massachusetts areas <laughs> and with people who were Trump supporters in Kentucky and they visit each other, you know, and I was fortunate. Did they achieve any, <clears throat> any degree of success? Absolutely, <coughs> absolutely. Me. They've had some moments, um, <clears throat> you know, of exchange where they, where they visit each other's homes they, um, and, and home communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what those spaces allow for is really a greater investigation of, you know, what are our genuine fears? What are our genuine concerns about our own lives, about the future of the country? We don't really have that space no, in we, a lot we don't of social usually have media. That, that dialogue, that That's discussion. Right. And especially when we <clears> think <throat> about how since like FCC rulings, you know, since the 1980s, there's a proliferation of news outlets, right? Where we now choose, we self-select into different right communities of news or media consumption, uh, much more than perhaps we did in the past where there were like the three major networks and like similar stories on the news every night. Now we're hearing very different things and that gives, you know, that's like um, the perfect firestorm for uh, spiraling into kind of different trajectories of what we believe to be true, what we believe is, is, um, is the way that our society is and should be. And so it kind of creates broader divides for us to try to bridge. Um, but I do think the same principles apply to the extent that there are people who would be willing to really dig deep and be vulnerable and be authentic in communicating across the you know, political lines. Um, I would be much more open <laughs> to yeah. those types of exchanges because they're real, they're heartfelt um, as compared to the the And they tweets. endure too. Well, yeah, because oh, I think it's the same her. type of thing so that the next time you read a news article from, you know, an outlet that's different from the ones that you normally read, and I encourage my students to do this, um, you might have more empathy. It's like I can see, based on what I've heard from people I know, I can see why they would think that way. Even if I don't agree, I can at least envision another way of being, another way 
um, that people live. It is a wonderful point to leave it on and an important conversation. Linda Tropp, thank you so much for being with us. That's all the time we have this week, but if you want to know more about storing in the public square, you can find us on Facebook and Twitter or visit PellCenter.org where you can always catch up on previous episodes. For G. Wayne Miller, I'm Jim Lutis asking you to join us again next time for more Story in the Public Square.